Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. We, uh, as Cody said, in a series called Ancient Paths, and we are sort of looking to navigate our spiritual lives these days. And we're wanting age-old wisdom, age-old wisdom to follow, truths that are unchanging in any era, any time, any circumstance. And so we have been looking at, we're going to look at Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, kind of a mini-series on wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, we've learned, teaches us to think, to think hard and to think humbly about life. One commentator wrote this about the three books. Proverbs shows us the reality of God's order. Job points to its hiddenness. And Ecclesiastes to its confusion. They're placed alongside each other to provide a full perspective of life and its difficulties. Not everything is easy to explain. And even though there is order to reality, uh, not Everything has a rule. There's not a rule for everything in life. So Proverbs kicked us off with a very practical guide for living. What do you do in difficult circumstances and with difficult people? And if you want to be blessed and successful, uh, Proverbs will show you how to do that. But Proverbs, while righteous living or we, we will see, generally pays off. It doesn't always. Life is hard. There are injustices. There are disastrous circumstances. And uh, there's also sin and stupidity. And you put all that together, and it doesn't always work out. You can eat right, and you can exercise, and you can still get sick. You can work really hard, and lose everything you've earned. You can raise your kids right. And somehow they lose their way. Or deny God completely. Living right doesn't always pay. Proverbs sort of cracks the door open on this reality. Providing us with wisdom for how to live when that happens. You need wisdom to live in a broken world. God is sovereign and he rules beyond rules and order. He rules over darkness and mystery. So we today, uh, while Proverbs sort of cracks the door, we're going to look at Job. And if Proverbs cracks the door, Job kicks it open. Perhaps it's not COVID that kept people from coming. It was the idea that Job was going to be taught. That could be true. So the beginning of Job is going to teach us how to live with God without gifts and blessings from him. And then the end of Job is going to teach us how, after the door's kicked open, it's barricaded and closed off. And how do you live with God without answers? 
Remember, the problem of evil, the problem of the book of Job is really a problem for Christians. If there's no God, then there's no problem with evil. Evil just is. It's sort of the secular, modern mindset. There's, there is no evil. There is no ultimate meaning to evil. Uh, and so it's really just a problem for those of us who are trying to figure out how God exists. So Job says, no, there is a God. And a moralistic approach, if you're just going to buy into the rule system, and that God blesses me when I do the right thing, that's, that answer, that's not going to cut it. But he's also going to say, neither will the nihilistic approach to life, that nothing means anything. There is no God and there is no purpose. So neither of those work for Job. This is the reason you can have the book, because he's going to fight over that. He's going to wrestle with in the darkness and the mystery. So let's look at Job 1. We have actually a lot to do. Job chapter 1, 1 to 5, sets the stage. We've got to do a little bit of reading in order to... to you've, you probably know this story somewhere in the back of your head. Some of the details I'll bet you forgot. I forgot some. So there's this man who lives in Uz. His name's Job. He's blameless and upright, feared God, turned away from evil... And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. The number 10 is important in Hebrew. means complete. means he has the perfect family. Uh, or I'm sorry, uh, in Job. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000. There's 10,000 animals. There's 10 is a key number. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Uh, many servants. He was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one. On his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. This sweet family all got along. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did. Continually. So it sort of sets the stage. What you've got is a really good guy. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 8, you'll hear God say there's no one like him on the earth and probably never was till Christ, probably never has been another Job. He obeyed God. He observed his religious duty. He hated evil. He lived every day of his life in obedience to God. And he was blessed for it. As you could see, he had good reputation, big family, good kids, wealth, everything you would expect for a guy that good. Job is not an everyman. None of us really can claim such a good life that we don't deserve any evil. But Job was the best of us, suggesting that if it can happen to him, It can certainly happen to any of us. And so it does. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, we need to read some of this. There was a day, this is right after we hear about Job, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also, or also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. 
This is the reason I suggest that I've, uh, that sort of the door's kicked in on this, because at the beginning of this, God's having this sort of divine board meeting. He has gathered his divine council, and they are meeting about the world. Uh, not sure where, it's not earth, but somewhere. Uh, and they're called the sons of God who sit on this council, and they are, remember, he's the Lord of hosts. And so there are a council of spiritual beings, angelic servants, who supervise God's realm. And Daniel, they're called watchers. And in Psalms, they're called the assembly of the holy ones. And so they gather together. And then uh, enter Satan. And his name is not used here, but he's called the accuser here, the adversary. Can't be anyone but Satan. That's why you'll read probably Satan in your text. Um, He also comes. Now listen, he's an intruder. Uh, My understanding is that he barges in on this meeting. He doesn't sit on the council. Uh, There's just no way. For multiple reasons, which I think, think the text gives, but theology gives. He's at odds with everything God is for. He couldn't possibly sit on the council. The words uh, that he also was there kind of suggest what, what was he doing there? And then this word here, this preposition, can mean uh, indicate an outsider. So he's distinct from the others, clearly. Uh, he has no place at the table, no official role. He's kind of a nuisance at one level. Um, he is addressed specifically and solely. And you're not surprised by that, because if you barge into a meeting, somebody's going to talk to you about that. And the first question is, where you been? Where'd you come from? And so what we find is that he's been roving, roving the earth, and First Peter sort of gives us, he's, he's a prowler, because he's like a lion. And this to and fro gives you the sense that he's restless. One commentator said he's a vagabond among the angels. Just sort of wandering. And then verse 8, the Lord says to him, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And so God is not surprised He knows why he's there. Job has caught his eye. So God and Job are on Satan's mind in this. And then verses, these verses, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan is sort of, as you would imagine, he's twisted and he's hostile and he's cynical, uh, a characteristic of evil. It sees nothing good. It believes nothing could be good. He accuses the whole spiritual dynamic between God and man as sort of a big game that's being played. Job's a phony, and you're an enabler. 
He uses you for stuff, and you give him stuff to keep him liking you, loving you. So you keep him in this small, protected bubble. He uses you, and you use him. Remember the famous line in the great theological movie, Saturday Night Fever? Everybody uses everybody, don't they? And he just, that's just a cynical view of life, and that's Satan's view of life. And so in verse 11, Satan says, just stop the game and see what happens. Stop blessing him. And actually, it's very strong what he says, because he says, uh, and see if he doesn't damn you to his face. Literally, it's hard to put in English, but he basically says, I'll be damned if he doesn't curse you to your face. And so in verse 12, um, let's see if I have that. I don't think I put it in here. I don't think I put verse 12 in. So in verse 12, God, of course, gives him permission. God allows it. He's in complete control and he's sovereign. He knew why Satan was there at this meeting. Uh, and it's important to realize that there's, there's this battle between good and evil, but they're not equal. This is not dualism where you have the good and the, and the bad are equal and you don't know who's going to win in the end. It's clearly Satan is uh, under the authority of God. In this text, they're not equal enemies. God alone is the ruler. And you remember, Job will do this twice. He'll barge into the meeting twice. The first time to take Job's wealth and his family through evil men and through a storm and lightning, fire. And then you read what Job says at the end, and I'll just read this to you. He says, after everything is lost, everything, all is wealth all of his children and servants, his animals. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came in from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Compared himself to a baby and a corpse, which they have one thing in common. They have nothing. They possess nothing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God. Uh, so what ends up happening is even after the second one, Job or Satan loses. So it turns out God wasn't using Job and Job wasn't using God. God was using Satan. God uses evil. Uh, He's the only one who gets used. God is enough. At the end of Job 1, we learn God is enough and is more valuable than his gifts. And he can be loved even if he doesn't give. And by the way, uh, after this, Satan just completely disappears. After chapter 2 and verse 7, he just, that, he just plays a very minor role in the book. And he has no place in its theology uh, Satan is there to prove that evil exists. This is why he barges in and why God allows it and why this all happens. Because evil really does exist. He is the instigator and the initiator of evil. God is not. 
God's not devising evil on the council. Satan devises it. Um, And even though evil is subject to his sovereignty, and it is, God intends only good and is capable of using evil and suffering to bring about good. And so God cannot be accused of evil. That's the point of this sort of intrusion. So from the standpoint of the believer, though, this is sort of the paradox. From the standpoint of the believer, though, God, Job, all his friends, and his wife, they all see what's happening to Job, the misfortunes coming upon Job, as coming from God, not Satan. Never once in any part of the book does anyone accuse Satan of the misfortunes. It's like something only God. We're privy to it. No one else in the book is. So they all see it as coming from God. Satan is never accused of any of them. So from the standpoint of the believer, listen, ultimately we're in God's care. And so when, we, when things happen to us, good or bad, we understand that that's a part of God's rule. And so we realize he's allowed it into our lives ultimately intends it for good but you never blame him God's never blamed but we understand that we're under his sovereignty very fascinating Um, then you get to uh, let's see at the end of chapter 2 after the second test here it is Um, remember this is after Job God takes Job's health And his wife finally says to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's like one of the worst things you could do. Job was very worried about this for his kids. That's why he was sort of acted as a priest for his family. I don't want my kids in case their heart wants to curse God. So she's wishing upon him the worst possible thing. But he said to her, listen to what he says to her, because what he says is very important. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Of course, this is foolish women and men would say this. The reason he says it's foolish is because it's not wise. This is not the wise way to deal with God. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And then all of this, again, Job did not sin with his lips. It's an important word, this word, uh, receive. Because everything comes from the hand of God. Good and evil comes from the hand of God. That's how Job sees it, even though Satan is the one who's morally chargeable for evil. Sovereignly, God is the one that we receive everything from, good or evil. And the point of this is to say, every experience you have in your life that's from the hand of God, which all of it is, according to Job here, is considered a blessing. That's why he uses the word receive. The word receive is an active word. It has the idea of in cooperation with God. I take it from him like I take everything else. It's all from him. It's the only way uh, for the believer to view his life. Now, let me just say, Satan has a really good point here that we need to 
uh, focus on for just a minute, and that is uh, he understands religious people. He understands the dynamic of relating to God and how easy it is to use God. And we've all probably suffered enough in life to realize that good things can come out of suffering. Some kinds of suffering we never will see the good in here. But most of us have suffered to some degree and have felt later on, wow, that I hated it, but it served me. I had a, I can think of at least one time in my life when I went off the rails spiritually. And it was early on. I mean, we've been a part of this church has been in existence for a little over 25 years. And uh, the first six were incredibly uh, trying for me and for probably for everyone. Um, but for me in particular, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, God, I'm a pastor. I, um, haven't I? We had so many aggravations and troubles and we just couldn't get out of our own way. And it just didn't seem like it was going to work for the longest time. I went into a depression. Uh, I just kept saying, God, you just keep fighting us. And I could just give, I could go through a list of things. And, uh, you know, I'm doing this for you, God. Why are you making it difficult? But really, it was for me. It's, I'm doing this for you, God. No, Satan's right. Sometimes we're really doing it for God, for us. And so it was a really difficult time. I, got, I, I went through a season of at least, at least two years where I couldn't pray for anything personally because I didn't think God cared about me. The only thing I could pray for was lost people. I never gave up the idea that God loved lost people, but I didn't think he cared about me. And I can look back on that time and tell you that I'm definitely a different person as a result of it. I'm a a different person. I approach ministry different as a result of it. Uh, Now I know that there are pockets in my life where I still do this. And um, I feel it. It's scary. Where I look at parts of my life and think, the reason this is happening is because I'm doing this. And that's why, by the way, I will tell you the, the, the main reason for you to cultivate a personal, private relationship with God outside of his blessings is so that when God does take away, it's a little less devastating and you've cultivated a relationship with him. If that's not enough to have a quiet time, there's no other reason that'll motivate you more than that. Well, you get into the Job after chapter 2 and something else happens. There's this need for answers. Job has answered the question, can I, is God good enough to love without gifts? He is. But now Job is, finds himself in desperate need of answers because his friends have come along and said, Job, you have to have done something bad in order for this to be happening to you. It's the only answer, the moralistic approach to relating to God which is incredibly insightful uh, for us to consider. Because you deserve this, Job. 
And Job is like God. He realizes in the sense that, you know, I don't think God sees anything evil in me, and I, I, I can't think of anything evil. And so here again comes the issue that wisdom literature seems to address a lot, and that is the issue of rules and morality. As though God is defined by morality. And what that does, if you define God only by morality, you'll shrink God into some really small world. And you become the biggest person in it. Because God becomes obligated to me. I do my good deeds, and God's obligated to me. And some of us are drawn to God because of morality. I've met many, many, many Christians over the years that are drawn to God uh, for morality. You know, listen, when suffering happens in a person's life, they either get closer to God or they get further away. Uh, because, and, and morality tends to always be right at the center of it. I'm attracted to God because of morality, and many people reject God because of, of his morality, but they're not rejecting the right God. If you reject God because he is moral, that's a problem too, because he's more than moral. And if you come to him because he's moral, you're going to find out that he's more than that. So he's more than that. And some of us, the truth is, we're not very intimate with him, but we'll argue for right and wrong all day. We're angry about right and wrong, but we're not very close to God. Because the part of God we like is the moral part. So we like being good, we like being right, we like being on the right side, we like black and white. It's not just that it makes us feel righteous. It gives us a little control over God. Well, if you do the right thing, then this has got to happen. That game's being played in your spiritual life among the best of us. It's how we manage him. Uh, One commentator wrote, to bring God under obligation to morality is a threat to his sovereignty. So Job insists, I haven't done anything wrong. So that means God must explain himself. If I haven't done anything wrong and God blesses people who do right, then he has some explaining to do. And that's why Job needs answers by the end of the book. On the other hand, he's very, very scared to hear the answers. Um, And I don't blame him. What's God going to say when he shows up? What's it like to be in his presence? And then and you get chapter uh, to 38, and God finally does show up after Job's friends, who, by the way, if you read um, Job 3 through uh, 37, you will, you'll be quite amazed at how well his friends know the moralistic approach to God. And they're right about a lot of it. This is how God works. You do this and he blesses you. And they pontificate on that. And they're right most of what they say. They're just not, it's just not the whole story. And so we get to chapter 38 and God finally speaks because Job's at his wit's end and nobody can, even Elihu at the end can't bring any uh, 
any sense to this. And so then God shows up in chapter 38 uh, in a storm. Then Job answered the Lord out of the whirlwind, out of a whirlwind. It's the same whirlwind that took his sons, that took his children, his daughters in chapter one. And now another whirlwind comes. It's as if to say, hey, there's a greater storm (laughs) dealing with God. You think dealing with evil is hard? You should deal with God. And you'd think it would have killed him too. And that's the whole idea is that you'd think God would have killed him. But God's pretty gracious to him even though he comes as a storm. God himself is a storm. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this suggesting that they can counsel me? Dress, Dress for action like a man. I will question you. Job gets questions, not answers. The Lord said, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it, chapter 40 says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I don't have answers either. I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And so what you have here is Job gets questions, and I counted them in 38 to 41. It's about 53, maybe more in Hebrew. I don't know. At least the ESV, there's about 53 questions mixed in with a bunch of weighty facts. Um, And the questions are impossible to answer. Um, Do you know the ordinances of heaven, Job? Uh, Can you count the clouds? Can you lead forth Maseroth in their season? Uh, uh, Lord, could you spell Maseroth for me? Let me make sure I got that right. And what it really shows you by the time you're done in 38 to 41 is just a big, long soliloquy of God's power over creation, that God is powerful and good, because if he created, he created a world for us to live in, so he's good. He's powerful and good, which just sort of exposes the whole idea of the problem of evil. If he's powerful... He wouldn't let evil happen. If he's good, he wouldn't let evil happen. So he's both. And so Job can't answer any of the questions. And Job realizes he's puny and small and powerless. Now listen, Job realizes at this moment here that his argument for his morality or his reason, so he can't morally explain it all and he can't with reason explain it all. He's kind of lost. Reason, our minds and how we think, sort of in the modern world, is worshipped over everything. We can solve all our problems. Just give us some time, some science and technology, and we'll figure everything in the world out. Um, And so here you have at the essence of the problem of evil. If we humans cannot think of a God or cannot think of a good reason why God allows evil and suffering, then there can't be one. That's how much we worship our own reason. And this is why Job ends up being able to live without explanation at the end of the book, but not God. He can live without an explanation, but he cannot live without God, we'll see. Because without God, I wouldn't even be, able, I wouldn't even be demanding an explanation. 
Moralism's God is too small. Nihilism is no God, and Job won't. Job prefers the abyss and the black hole of living in between those. And so he militates against both. A certainty, one commentator said, about evil and moral obligation has no explanation if God isn't there. So this is important. Uh, Because God is there, I can ask why. You can ask why and you will. And it's a great question because it assumes somebody's there with an answer. Which is a great assumption. I think the right one. He assumes God and no answer assumes he's a big God. He said, what, uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to give you two reasons to sort of wrap this up as to why I don't think Job gets answers at the end. One of them I think is obvious. Uh, one of them Somebody help me see. The first one is, uh, I couldn't possibly grasp it even if he, if he gave it to me. That's the whole point of chapter 38 through 41. Even if he gave me an answer, I, I don't think it would make a difference. This is a very, very powerful point. You clearly operate, God, on a whole other strategy of 53 questions. Proves it. I couldn't pass. And God is sort of saying to him, if you can't pass this, how are you going to, if you can't understand how I created the universe, do you expect to understand mysteries? I mean, you live in the world I created and can't answer the questions. You have no place in my mysteries. I remember growing up, you do too, I'm sure, and as far as I can, as far as I can recall, uh, you sort of had to take math in the appropriate order, all right? Uh, basic arithmetic, and then, you know, eventually get to geometry, and then you get to algebra one and two. Now, these days, I don't know what's happened. They're doing things in third grade that I've never even heard of. Um, but you got to geometry, and I remember you had to have algebra one before you could have algebra two, and then you got to calculus, and people were in calculus. Remember when people would tell you in their hallways that you, they were in calculus, and you went, What? And then there's math after that. I think they make, all up, make it all up after calculus. All right, it's all fake after, after calculus. Um, and so, uh, but you know, you just keep going. You know, you, you, God is like saying, listen, if you, I remember being told because of your schedule, you know, you're like, I got to take algebra two because it's being offered this man. If I don't get it next, I can't take it next man. And I, I can't take, I got to take two before. And they look at you and go, sorry, you got to have one before two. Unless you're just a brilliant. You got to have one before two. And God is saying to him, if you can't understand creation, you're not going to understand my mysteries. Uh, and by the time you get to quantum physics, which is something I do enjoy reading about, even though I don't grasp it. Okay, physics. I can't do the math. Can't even comprehend the math. I just love what it all means. But by the time you get to quantum physics, one of the most amazing things about it is that nothing operates on rules. 
Nothing does what it's supposed to do. This is why it's so difficult to calculate anything and to figure anything out from it because nothing does what it's supposed to do. By the time you get to the tiniest place, it's as if God is saying, at the, at the basic structure of the universe is mystery. Underneath all of the way you normally see life working is a mystery. Not always easy answers. Impossible to find them. And that's why God is capable of of destroying creatively. He's capable of of taking something horrible and making something good at it, and only he can do that. Now, I will tell you, it's very frustrating to get an answer you don't like. Have you, have you ever thought about the fact that you might have gotten an answer you didn't like? Not only did you not understand the answer, but maybe you didn't like the answer. What if God gave you an answer to your issues, and you said, I disagree? What good would that get you? Then you know what would happen? You might worship agreement more than God. Ah, I see what you're doing. I'm in. There's just no winning. Answers can't save you. Your morals can't save you, and answers can't. Reason can't save you. It's just a powerful message. And so then you get to chapter 42 and verses 1 to 3. And when Job realizes that he can't grasp it, that's kind of what he says. Job answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was the question God asked Job. And Job repeats it and says, I don't think I knew what I was talking about. When you asked me that question, I knew I couldn't answer it. Things too wonderful for me. Too wonderful. This is profound because he finally realizes that God will accomplish his purposes even in a world that has pain and suffering in it. He's all-powerful. He's beyond me. There's another answer that I think is possible. If you read Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, I reread the whole book again this week. It's, it's the best you'll hear. Um, at the very end of the book, uh, and the book's not about Job, but at the end of the book, he sort of refers to Job, And he says, I wonder if it's possible Job doesn't get an answer or reasons for what happened to him. Um, Because what would it have sounded like had God said something like this to Job? You don't realize this because I didn't tell you this at the front of the book, but you beat Satan. And I know it hurt, but you'll be great someday. You'll be an inspiration to hundreds of millions of people. For more than three, at least 3,000 years, your name will be known universally. 
No one will suffer without thinking of you, Job. Job, you're the best. Job, you're the best. Think that answer might have ruined Job? You think it might have given him a reason to do what he did and puffed him up? That's why the end of Job's response, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. So you see who's great at the end of this story, even though Job doesn't have an answer? God is great. Job sees himself humble, despises himself, and retracts, and sees himself in dust and ashes. This is a, as humble a position as you can possibly be in. So one commentator says this. This is important. It's one of the many excellences of the book that Job is brought to contentment without ever knowing all the facts of his case. The test would work only if Job did not know what it was for. God thrust Job into an experience of dereliction to make it possible for Job to enter into a life of naked faith to learn to love God for himself alone. By the way, that's ultimate wisdom, by the way. The ultimate wisdom is to love God for himself alone. Then he says this. To withhold the full story from Job, even after the test was over, keeps him walking by faith, not by sight. He does not say in the end, now I see it all. He never sees it all. He sees God. Perhaps it is better, Anderson writes, if God never tells any of us the whole story of our lives. So I think we learned essentially two things from Job. Two incredibly important things, but there are many others. First, God is so sovereign, so capable, so good that he blesses our lives whether he's giving or taking. It's a blessing. Do you have some great things going on in your life? That's a blessing. Do you have some things God has removed from your life that you really loved? I don't know how. But it's a blessing. Secondly, God does not have to explain, nor could he, and you grasp it anyway. No answer may be far better than an answer. Now, if you're like me, I got to tell you, this is the honest truth. Uh, I love Job. You get to the end and it's, it's, it's not enough. It explores the mystery of God, but, uh, and I know that there's a part of my relationship with God that needs to understand his mysterious side, and I love that side more and more as I age, uh, but I need more. And when you're really hurting, you need more. And that's why Job's greatest gift to us, all the commentators point to it, is that he points to the ultimate Job. He points to the ultimate Job. The only really true innocent sufferer. 
who knew sorrow and grief. He's not only sovereign like Job says. Job didn't know this. He's also a sufferer himself. He absorbed evil. The cross becomes at once God's greatest gift and his perfect answer to evil. There's your gift and there's your answer that prove God loves you beyond all comprehension. The cross proves once and for all that God can use suffering to bring about good, ultimate redemption, and salvation, and gives the hope that one day justice will be done. The cross accomplishes good and punishes evil, and there is nowhere else in the world you can turn to for that hope. Let's pray. Father, we cannot begin to grasp this, and I want to say to anyone who right now is experiencing pain that we need more than anything else to look to your cross. Job was a great example, but the cross is the powerful force in our life that reminds us that you love us. And even though we have lost something and maybe don't understand, you have given us the greatest gift and the greatest answer to our pain in your son. In Jesus' name, amen.